0: the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Under hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will threat on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is a beautiful psalm that encourage us as believers to trust God in times of uncertainty, in times uh, where where everything seems to be falling apart, uh, in times where our lives may seem um, compromised by uh, external or internal attacks. And I think we do well to take heed and advice from the words of the psalmist. Uh, This this psalm is divided into three segments. Uh, Segment 1 from verses 1 to 2, which are an affirmation that God is a refuge. Uh, Segment 2, which go from verses 3 to verses 13, which is a description of how the Lord is a refuge. And segment 3, the final one that go from verses 14 to 16, uh, which are a confirmation by God Himself that, that He truly is our refuge. Um, and I think we could spend a lot of time going from verse uh, 1 to verse 16. Uh, but just for the sake of time and for making this a short devotional, um, I want us to focus in that first uh, segment verses 1 and 2 um, and then verses 14 and 16 which are the, the third segment um, first segment an affirmation that God is our refuge uh, listen to the words of the psalmist he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty I will say to the Lord my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I Trust. The Reformation Bible study uh, comments on on verse 1 in the following way. It says, He who dwells will abide, states the theme of the whole psalm. Those who draw near to God can have peace in Him no matter how difficult their circumstances. Now, what well, we're living today with COVID-19 can stroke a lot of fear in our hearts, a lot of questions, our certainty um, of, of what's going to happen, and and I can understand that from a human standpoint. I can understand that, but the psalmist is encouraging us to understand this truth and this reality that belongs and this promise that belongs to every single believer, every single person who is in Christ, that God is our shelter, that God is our refuge and that we are under His shadow, meaning we are under His protection. This is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if we believe this, that you're not going to get sick or that you're not going to face any sort of um, trouble in life. No, what, what I am saying is, I'm not saying that, what I am saying is that um, we're called to trust the God to whom we belong to, to trust that whether in sickness, whether in famine, whether in whatever situation life throws at us, we belong to Him, and nothing can change that, and that we are held eternally secure in the hands of our God. And then nothing, not COVID-19, not any other sickness, not any other illness, nothing can can change that truth and that reality that those who belong to God, God is for them. In other words, I think the psalm uh, is pointing us uh, to, to to for us to embrace this this big idea that those who trust in the Lord can live with the assurance that God looks after them and keeps them. Now, after me saying all that stuff, right? I also want to encourage you in the following. I'm not saying don't pray for protection. Don't pray for God to deliver you. Uh, uh, from sickness or all that stuff. No, I think we should pray for those things because ultimately God is sovereign. Ultimately, God is the one who is in control. What I'm saying is that even if we pray for that, and ultimately we are not healed, ultimately we do get COVID-19. That doesn't mean that God is still not that God is not for you. I would encourage you that even through situations like that that we should still trust the lord that we should we should still trust that he is good that he knows best that he still has a plan whether we live whether we die god will be glorified and we should trust him and now our context might be a little different than the one of the psalmist, right? That uh, we're not under literal war. Uh, Arrows are not flying over our heads. Um, We are experiencing uh, some kind of a plague. Um, But verses 14, 15, and 16 affirm precisely what I've been saying, that God is for His people and that He cares for them and that He will keep them. Um, Verse 14, Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. With long life, I will satisfy Him. And show him my salvation. I think that more than more than uh, um, I'm taking these three verses as something as that, you see, if we pray, He will deliver us, uh, and, 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 and no illness, nothing will touch us. Um, I think that would be a wrong, uh, egocentric, uh, selfish prayer. Uh, now, before I get stones thrown at me. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for God, for the protection of the Lord over our lives. We should. We should pray for those things. What I'm saying is that I think this here, verses 14, 15, and 16, uh, uh, points us to, to the reality that because we know God, we can trust Him, that ultimately, whether we are delivered or not, in this side of eternity, from pestilence, sickness, uh, or ultimately death, um, we are completely secure in the God that we know that we belong to, in the God that is for us, and the God that loves us, and the God who has shown us His salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So I think we should be encouraged We should be moved and pushed every day to trust the Lord in the midst of this situation that we're currently facing, to trust Him, to pray, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, uh, and to know that that, that He is our refuge, He is our shelter, and that ultimately we are secure in Him.
1: Matthew chapter 6, verses 5. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray then like this. Friends, Jesus lays out very practically a direct instruction on prayer. He gives us a framework of how to pray. And for myself, this is a huge blessing because I don't know about you, but for myself, prayer can be a tough discipline to see in my everyday walk. And Jesus lays it out on how we ought to pray,
2: which we will read in
1: due course. But I think it is important that we start where Jesus starts. And if you want to know how to pray, you need to know how not to pray. And Jesus makes that statement, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. It's the first phrase that we see as a prominent. This practice of prayer ought to be a staple in the Christian life. For I'm reminded of the prophet Daniel who prayed three times a day, or the psalmist who prayed seven times a day of praise. I think of Jesus who doesn't only teach us to pray, but he shows us by daily routine, by daily spending whole nights in prayer. I'm convinced that one of the biggest challenges facing us as individuals is the lack of prayer. If each of us could fervently ask ourselves, when was the last time I truly prayed? Not with the grocery list of items, but with the lamentation of Daniel. As he prayed with fervor concerning the decree, the, the decree that basically outlawed the practice of prayer with anyone who broke this law being in danger of the lion's den. When was the last time we came to the Lord with the praise of the psalmist who had the praise of God in both the good and the bad times of life, always upon his lips? And when was the last time we came to God with the same urgency as Jesus who prayed urgently for his disciples? praying over their very souls friends and walking with christ i have come to realize that it gets easier and easier to dismiss prayer it's easy for us to hear jesus say when you pray and interpret it as if you pray and why don't we pray as often as we should perhaps it's because we don't believe that god uh, can do great things After all, we live in a technological, scientific age that somewhat eliminates the thought of supernatural. Why pray when certain things are just impossible and can never happen? Perhaps it is because we don't have the time to pray. This is a strong excuse because work, personal life, and miscellaneous things consume us and can be overwhelming. Maybe our question is, when can I find the time to pray? On top of this, entertainment is time-consuming. Movies continue to get made. TV shows continue to get made. Competitive sports are getting better and better every passing year. And the list goes on and on. When can I pray when so many things are fighting for my attention? More often than not, our prayer concerns or our lack of any Christian discipline is a heart issue. Either we don't truly understand the God that we are to come to in prayer or we in our understanding of God realize that we don't need Him, we don't trust Him or we don't love Him it is this heart issue that is at the root of the Israelites' sin in Jeremiah chapter 2 what do they say? It says my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water and hewn out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold the water And before this, God asked the Israelites, What fault did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness? We were all guilty of this. We, in our false perception of God, deem him not enough. So we run to other things. We are a people that time and time again follow a God that is not the God of the Bible, but a self-created God that is too small and leaves us wanting more. Voltaire said it. He said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been paying the favor ever since. This is the issue that Adam and Eve had, the issue the Israelites had, the issue the 12 disciples had, and this is the issue that we have. Of course, we will have our doubts of the supernatural. Of course, uh, we will use things like work and responsibilities to excuse our lack of of course, we will be consumed by entertainment. Of course, we may not fully understand who God is. And of course, we may at times feel independent from God. It's not a new issue. It's the oldest of all issues. So what does he say? He says, so pray then like this. Before he says that, he says, this is how you shouldn't pray. And Jesus lays out two things to, do, to not do in prayer. Do not be like the hypocrites. First, Jesus commands, we don't pray like the hypocrites. Jesus says these types are those that love to stand in the synagogue and on the street corners and pray. The issue with this prayer is not that they are standing as opposed to sitting or laying. It's also not that they are praying in public. No, friends, rather, the issue is that they are praying for public's approval. That's why Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. To understand prayer, we need to understand who our audience is and why we are praying. R.A. Turi, the evangelist, wrote in his book on prayer we should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to Him. And Jesus gives us the correct way to pray by following with, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret. Again, Jesus is not saying that the only place one ought to pray is at home, alone. No, he is speaking unto this hard issue, this hypocrisy. And the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word that means an actor. As an actor, you need to be a performer or a showman. Jesus is sharing the truth that no one should strive to be this grand performer or this great showman when it comes to prayer. And how do you eliminate the tendency to perform? It's easy. You eliminate the audience. I challenge all of us, if you don't do so already, find a place to pray in seclusion, observed and heard by God and God alone. Not in an hour, not in 10 minutes, right now. Go pray in seclusion. Second, Jesus states, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, Jesus is speaking to the pagan rituals in prayer via the Gentiles, which means the non Jews. And it's not repetition that He is attacking as wrongful prayer. After all, the angels' praise that we read of in multiple places in Scripture is filled with repetitive phrases. The big difference is that of meaning in the phrases. In antiquity, as also today, it was the custom to pray to false gods with the idea that the more I talk to the God, the more likely he will listen. This is seen in the book of 1 Kings when the pagan prophets pray over and over to the God of Baal from morning till noon, O Baal, answer us. The prophets and Elijah are duking it out to see which God is superior and Elijah isn't worried for one second. After hours of their mindless incantation, Elijah mocks them by saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And when Elijah prays, he says something similar to the prophets of Baal. He says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And the Lord answers immediately and burns up the sacrificial bull. See, at the end, the only thing these pagan prayers work out is your face muscles, for they are empty. And don't mistake me here. I'm not saying that it's just the pagans that have this issue. No, we heap up empty phrases to God also. When you pray, is your heart responding to what your lips are saying? Are you dwelling on what your lips are saying? Or are you mindlessly praying these things? Most of us probably right now can recite the Lord's Prayer by heart, blindfolded. But do we dwell on the words within the prayer? This is why we hear what Jesus said in his teaching concerning prayer. Because every word in the Lord's Prayer is not nonsense incantation or mindless symbols No, they are they hold money and are words to develop to learn from and be healed sometimes we hear of jesus praying the whole night or daniel praying three times a day or the psalmist praying seven times a day and we get overwhelmed we may say well gee i can hardly pray for two minutes let alone a whole night Some days long prayers are needed, brothers and sisters. Some days the shorter the better. But all days we need to come before the Lord, not with lip service, but with a heart and a mind that is dwelling on the God who longs to hear our prayers. Martin Luther once said, Prayers should be brief, frequent, and intense. Augustine said before him, Remove from prayer much speaking, not much praying. So friends, let us turn to God in prayer by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our Daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory,
2: forever, ever. Amen. Romans one eight through twelve. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. By the looks of things, Paul wasn't in any need of a spiritual gift from the Romans. The church in Rome was divided. The Jewish Christians acted arrogantly as if God loved them more, and the more wealthy Roman citizens lorded their power over the poorer Jews. Paul had been on three amazing missionary journeys, full of seeing cities, families, and lives be transformed by the power of Jesus, and Paul was devoted to that Jesus, devoted to the story of the world in service to God. What did Paul need that the Romans could give him, and why did he long to see them? Well, actually, it's pretty simple. Throughout Paul's letters, we realize that he understands the church to be the body of Jesus. Each and every follower of Jesus receives their life from him. The quality and substance of our life is brand new, and it comes from God himself. So Paul knows that despite what things look like in Rome, the ultimate truth of who they were, the body of Christ, is too special to ignore. If Paul's learned anything throughout his ministry— It's that every person who has new life in Jesus has something special to offer. Just like the organizations that need every position to carry out their role to be successful, our growth in faith depends on the encouragement, gifts, perspectives, and personalities of our brothers and sisters. So what about us? Are we too arrogant to lean on the people that God has placed around us to grow in our faith? Or are we too embarrassed or complacent to give what we have to offer to our brothers and sisters so that they could grow too? The church is at her best when those who belong together long to be together.